Let's pray together. Father God, thank you that what we just sung can be true not only in our voice, not only in our words, not only in our minds, but in our hearts and our souls today. We can leave today with a peace that we didn't have even when we came. We can be peacemakers in the way the world so desperately needs more people to be. We can experience your peace that passes understanding even here and now today. Teach us how to do that, Father. Show us what that is. Show us what that means. Lead us to the peace you intended to give us so that through us you can give your peace to the world. I pray for me and us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I came across the other day some wisdom from first graders. Someone said, everything I needed to know in life I learned in kindergarten. Isn't that a book, something like that? Yeah, well, first graders apparently learned this from kindergartners. Here's some wisdom I know you'd probably want to write down and take with you today. Wisdom, hang on from here we go. First graders, don't bite the hand that looks dirty. That's good wisdom, right? You're not writing this down. You need to be writing this down. They're finishing sentences here, and that's the first one. Here's the second. If you lie down with dogs, you'll stink in the morning. Think about that. I mean, you know, there's actually maybe something there. A penny saved is not much. And then here's the reason I put these up here today. Better to be safe than punch a fifth grader. Wisdom, isn't it? Things you just need to know in life, right? To get ahead. It's been calculated that of the last 3,400 years of human history, humans have been at peace for 268 years. 8% of recorded human history. 3,400 years anyway. 8%. We've been at peace. A lot of the peace that we need, that we don't have, is the result of things that are outside of our control, of course. Praying right now for what's going on in New Orleans and Louisiana, up in the Mississippi, and uh, the floods that are happening and the damage as a result and all that's inside that. As of this morning, the good news is that the Mississippi apparently is not going to reach the 20-foot crest. It's going to get close, but apparently not going to crest, and that's good news. But still so much that's inside that and so much of the turmoil in life is nothing probably we could have necessarily prevented, but so much of it is. You might have seen the thing in the Persian Gulf this week about the U.K.-British uh, tanker and the Iranians and uh, the conflict that was narrowly avoided there from what could have at least been a regional conflict, a regional war if not more, and all the attention right now on the Iranian uh, nuclear ambitions and all that's inside that, and Iran to Hezbollah to the Shiite Crescent and uh, the kind of Cold War that's heating up with Saudi Arabia and just all that's happening there. When you think about the conflict in the world, most of it seems like are things that if we had taken Jesus' beatitude to heart, would be different. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed. Makarios in the Greek. A peace and a tranquility that surpasses circumstance. A sense of well-being that the world can't give. Blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called sons of God. We're walking through the Beatitudes this summer. This is the next to last, and it may be the most vital for our culture, for what we're doing today. So let's think about it on two levels real quickly. First of all, how do we have peace? Can't give what I don't have. If you're looking for singing lessons, don't come to me, you know? If you're needing help with your golf swing, I'm not the guy you want to talk to about this. I was playing with a friend a few years ago, and I shanked something, and I asked him what I needed to do, and he said, you'll have to get better before I can help you. You know, which uh, <laughs> was not encouraging. That wasn't the kind of affirmation, support, and friendship I was. It was true. It just wasn't helpful, you know, at that moment in time. So I can't give you what I don't 
have. We can't give the world peace we don't have. So the first stage to being peacemakers is being people who experience, obviously, the peace of God. What does that look like? Where do you need that? Where in your heart? Where in your family? Where in your circumstance? The word peace is shalom. It's the greeting in Israel. When you're in Israel, people will say shalom. Or if it's the Sabbath or Shabbat, they'll say Shabbat shalom. Shalom means be well. It's not just hello or goodbye. It's be well in all the senses of being well. Shalom. Where do you need shalom? Think about that as we look at what God's word says about this. First of all, how do you have shalom? How is it that you and I can have peace in order to share peace? Well, Scripture says, Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. It comes from Jesus. It doesn't come from the world. That's why the world has so little of it, because we're looking in the wrong place. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. It comes from Jesus. So here's some principles. First of all, accept the love of God. Experience the love of God. God, because it's only in his love that you're going to experience the peace that otherwise you're going to miss. I found this quote from Sophia Loren, the actress, speaking to USA Today. She made this statement, I should go to heaven, otherwise it's not nice. I haven't done anything wrong. My conscience is very clean. My soul is as white as those orchids over there, and I should go straight, straight to heaven. Well, by response, Scripture says, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, justified by faith. Do you have a faith relationship with Jesus? Do you have a personal relationship with him? Have you asked him to forgive your mistakes and be your Lord? Not about being Methodist, Baptist, Catholic. None of that. Not about being on time in chapel, in which case you're the only one here. It's not that, right? It's about a personal relationship with a personal God that starts there. If you know you have that, then you have the foundation. If you don't, then you have no foundation. Then the second step, if we're going to experience the peace of God, we accept the love of God, then we obey the word of God. Paul Simon, the musician, says, the only thing that God requires from us is to enjoy life and love. It doesn't matter if you accomplish anything. You don't have to do anything but appreciate that you're alive and love. That's the whole point, says Paul Simon. Well, what would Scripture say? Great peace have they who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. Do you love his law? Are you living biblically? You can't have the peace of God if you're not in position to receive what God wants to give, right? If somebody happens to drive by out there while we're having chapel in here, they can't hear what we're doing. It's not their fault necessarily. They're just not where they would need to be to hear what we're doing. If I'm not willing to be in the will of God, I can't experience the peace of God. So is there a place in your life out of alignment with God's word? Is there something God's word would have you do that you're not or stop doing that you are? Is there a place in your life where you're not where God's will would have you be? In order to have his peace, first you need a relationship with him. That's the love of God. Then you need to be in alignment with his will. That's the word of God. And then the third step is to receive, if necessary, the forgiveness of God. Scripture says, this is actually, this is Dwight Moody before we get to Scripture. He was giving a Bible to a friend, and he wrote on the flyleaf these words, either this book will separate you from your sins, or your sins will separate you from this book. It's one or the other, you know. That's why Scripture says there's no peace for the wicked, and be sure your sin will find you out. So if there is a place where your life isn't aligned with God's word and will, 
today's the day to confess that and claim God's forgiveness. He forgives all that we confess, and then he even forgets what he forgives. Scripture says he remembers it no more. He buries it in the depths of the deepest sea. He separates it from us as far as the east is from the west, but he can only give what we'll receive. So if there's not shalom in your soul, if you and I were talking about that personally, and we sat down to talk, and you said, I just don't have peace in my heart today, my first question would be, do you know him personally? Then second, are you aligned with his word and will? And if you're not, ask his forgiveness. Because if you have, it's yours. And then last, you can trust the will of God, whatever God's will is for your life. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind has stayed on you because he trusts in you. That's the perfect peace. It comes from a personal, intimate relationship with God where we're living according to his word and we're confessing what we need to confess. And then we're in perfect peace because our mind has stayed on him. I love this from H.G. Wells. If there is no God, nothing matters. If there is a God, nothing else matters. Right? So how can I experience the peace of God out of a personal, intimate relationship where I'm aligned with his word and will, and I've confessed what I need to confess, and I'm walking according to his purpose for my life? That's how I experience the shalom of God. That's how it works. He wants us to have that. If I don't have it, it's, there's something wrong. It's not that God's holding out. There's something wrong because he wants us to walk in that peace. All right. So that's how we find true peace. How do we share true peace? Well, a few more biblical principles. First of all, and this is hard, if you're not at peace with somebody, if there's a relationship in your life that is not what God wants it to be, you have to take the first step, whether it was your fault or not, whether there was something you could have done differently or not. Scripture says we initiate pardon. This is Romans chapter 12. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, when you figure that all out, let the rest of us know if you would, okay? That's hard. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's hard. It's a lot easier for us to punish the person internally, if not externally. A whole lot easier for us not to forgive, because if we forgive, then we have to pardon, and we have to, have to release that, and I'd rather not, because they haven't been punished yet. They haven't asked for forgiveness yet. They haven't admitted what they did yet. They haven't taken responsibility yet. And until they do, I think, it's wrong for me to initiate relationship with them and initiate forgiveness. But all the while I'm waiting, all the anger and the frustration and the animosity is just eating me up. It's not hurting them. It's just killing me. That's why initiating forgiveness is God's word. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So Scripture says that we initiate pardon and we seek reconciliation. If you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. If we were taking an offering, which we don't, that's one of our three rules, but if we were taking an offering here and you're your gift in the altar, in the offering, and there you remember that your brother has something against you. Jesus says, get up, leave. Go be reconciled and then come back is the idea, the metaphor here. And notice this. I remember the first time I realized this, and it struck me. It stopped me in my tracks as I was reading it. 
if your brother has something against you, not if you have something against your brother. If your brother has something against you, whether it's your fault or not, is there anybody walking around out there that has something against you? Well, Jesus would say, stop the service, leave the chapel, go make it right, go initiate reconciliation. To the degree that you need to ask forgiveness, ask forgiveness. To the degree that you need to offer pardon, offer pardon. Now, whether they respond or not is not up here. What they do is not in the text. Whether they respond or not is not on you. But you will go the rest of your life knowing you did what you could do. Knowing you offered shalom. Whether they accept it or not is now on them. No longer your responsibility. But it is your responsibility to take the first step. And then when you do that, you can choose peace. If you're living today without shalom in your life, you're not where God wants you to be. God wants you to be at peace. Being outside of his shalom is not the normal, natural way of life. And those that live in shalom have somehow found something the rest of us will never discover. That's not it at all. God intends us to be at shalom. Scripture says God has called us to peace. Scripture commands us, be at peace among yourselves. So where is it in your life that you need the shalom of God? What does that look like? How could you be a peacemaker after becoming a peace receiver? What would that look like for you today? If you will be a person who chooses to experience and to share the peace of God, the world will take note. In a conflicted world like ours, the world will take note. I give you this example, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together, and we'll be done. This is John Wesley. There we go. Wesley is known to the world as the founder of the Methodist Church. He wasn't known that way for a whole lot of his life. In fact, the what we call the Methodist Church didn't actually come to be as it is until after his death. He never knew himself to be the founder of a denomination we call the Methodist Church today. He was the founder of a movement that became that. He was one of the most significant, one of the most remarkable Christian leaders of all time. He, on horseback, preached the gospel with such rapidity and such consistency that is calculated, he could have ridden around the world ten times. That's how much horseback riding he did to share the gospel. He preached more than 40,000 sermons. I went online this week looking for a compendium of all of Wesley's writings. I have a six-volume set in my library of uh, his most significant writings, it said. But if you wanted to get today everything that Wesley wrote, it would take 65 volumes that you'd have to purchase in order to have everything that he wrote. A life of absolute remarkable impact for the gospel. But it didn't start that way. Early in his life, he became a missionary from England to the American Indians. The whole story behind that. Although he was not yet himself converted. He didn't know he wasn't converted. He didn't know that he was missing the relationship with God that he eventually had. He knew something was wrong. There was, there was, no, there was no shalom in his heart and his soul. And he didn't know what it was. And his day and time, his understanding was the more you work, the harder you try, the earlier you get up, the later you stay up. That, that's how you get there. And the best way to get there was to go be a missionary. So he decided he would go be a missionary to the American Indians. And as he said later in his journals, I came to convert the Indians, but oh, who will convert me? And on one of his trips across the Atlantic, he was on a ship that was struck with a horrific storm. And in his journal later, Wesley wrote these words. 
The sea broke over, split the mainsail in pieces, covered the ship, and poured in between the decks as if the great deep had already swallowed us up. A terrible screaming began among the English. The Moravians calmly sang on. The Moravians were a German group of Christians who were also on the ship with him traveling over to America. Moravian brethren, they're sometimes called. And he said, while he, the English, were screaming, the Moravians calmly sang on in a worship service. I asked one of them afterwards, were you not afraid? He answered, I thank God, no. I asked, but were not your women and children afraid? He replied mildly, no, our women and children are not afraid to die. From there, Wesley says, I went to neighbors and pointed out to them the difference in the hour of trial between him that feared God and him that feared him not. At 12, the wind fell. This was the most glorious day which I have hitherto seen. And Wesley said it was his experience with those Moravians that was used directly by God to lead him to faith in Christ. When he saw their peace, he knew he needed what they had. Imagine going out into your life this week in shalom. Imagine having peace with God and others in yourself. How different would that be from the rest of the world? How much would the world want what you have? What John Wesley will be impacted by the shalom of Christ? Well, that's the gift that's on offer today. That's what Jesus died to give you. That's why he died, was to make peace between God and man. That's what he offers you today. As we take this supper in just a moment, we invite every one of us who knows Christ as Lord. No membership, none of that. If you know Jesus, you're welcome to his table. In just a moment, we'll pass out the bread and the cup, and then we'll take them together. And we'll do this in gratitude for God's grace. But as we do this, please know that what this symbolizes here is a very real thing. Jesus really did die on a cross. He really did die to pay for your sin. He'd do it all again just for you. He loves you that much. He died that you might have the shalom of God. As you take the bread and the cup, I hope you'll take what they represent. I hope you'll take what Jesus offers. Let's pray. Where in your life do you need shalom? Name it right now. Ask God for peace right there, right now. If there's some place where he's calling you to be more aligned with his will and his word, if there's something he wants you to confess, if there's something he wants you to do or not do, if there's some place he wants you to be more surrendered, if there's somebody he wants you to forgive or seek forgiveness from, what's your next step towards shalom? Would you decide to take it here and today? And would you do so in gratitude for the grace that this supper represents? Father God, I'm so grateful for what your son did for me and for us. I'm so grateful to know that because of what he did, what we do now is nothing but our response to your grace. Nothing we have to do to earn. Nothing we have to do except to receive. May we receive. As freely as we receive these elements, 
May we receive your shalom today. I pray for me and us in Jesus' name.